My guest, Lisa Brackbill, gracefully shares about her journey from the moment she realizes her baby's behavior and crying are not normal, to the diagnosis of the terminal illness called Crabbe, to her final breath. Although we do discuss the passing of Victoria in a beautiful manner, this episode may be a trigger for some, or not appropriate for younger children. Please use your discretion. Welcome, welcome! Hello. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on. Of course. And talking about your journey. I um, was just thinking of, I actually have a fleece jacket on and I'm a little warm. So spring must be trying to show up. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> we'll say it too loud just in case it gets mad and leaves again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Oh, so how are you doing today? Doing pretty well. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing good. I know you have little baby boy twins around the horizon. Yes, 12 days till that adventure starts. <laughs> now will you will they induce you or is that your due date? Um, we're having a C-section at 36 weeks. Okay, so and, yeah. Um did you have a C-section before? Like, what's what's about? I don't know about embracing. <laughs> I did. I did have a previous C-section, okay. but um, with with this type of twin, and because of because of the fact that they share a placenta, it's just safer. And oh. baby B will not stay head down anyway. Like even today during the ultrasound, he flipped around. So they can't guarantee that he's gonna stay in position. So I said, that's fine. Let's just schedule this, get them out safely and call gotcha. a day. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Well, how about you go ahead and introduce yourself and uh, tell our listeners uh, about yourself and then we'll dig right on in. My name is Lisa Brackbill and I'm originally from Northern California, but I have lived in central Pennsylvania for almost 10 years, even though that means I have winter which I don't <laughs> love, especially this year, <laughs> because uh, it won't go away. <laughs> um, I, I live in Hershey, Pennsylvania with my husband and soon to be our twin boys. Awesome. I know. I'm so excited for you. I'm so excited. So I, I, um, I wanted you to come on. Um, I just like having your average, you know, normal heroes, people doing life. And, um, you know, I know a bit about your story. And about your daughter Tori, and um, and I just uh, be honored for you to share your journey um, from uh, the time that you know you found out something wasn't quite right. And sure. uh, I'll just ask questions, make comments along the way. Uh, you are free to share as much or as little as you want, but I figure since you did write a book, <laughs> <laughs> that you know uh, there's a whole lot of things that we probably wouldn't, you know, broach or a subject. Um, so your book is Even So Joy, right? Yes. Excellent. So um, if anybody's interested later in reading the book, uh, please do so. Um, she shares candidly about the journey you guys are going to hear about. So let's go back how many years? Three? Yeah. yeah four. Four years since almost four years. since she was born. Okay. Go ahead. Take it away. <laughs> <laughs> so... Like any first-time parents, we were just overjoyed when our Victoria or Tori was born, mm -hmm. and she seemed to be totally healthy and happy and um, 
just like the perfect little baby. And then when she turned five months old, which was January of 2015, it was like a switch flipped and she became an entirely different baby in pretty much the matter of matter of days. And it took us a what long... did you what did you start noticing at that point? She she wouldn't stop crying and it was not a cry of you know, because obviously babies have different cries. This was mm-hmm. this was strange and we knew something was wrong. Like she we couldn't figure it out for a while, but we figured out later it was pain that she was okay. in pain. But she stopped smiling, talking, playing with her toys laughing well even though we now really should never actually really laughed anyway Mm -hmm. but everything that a typical five-month-old is doing she stopped doing she stopped even trying to move she definitely became an even worse sleeper which I didn't think was possible but we knew something was really wrong and so I took her to the pediatrician after about two weeks of this because you know with with babies they outgrow things they go through growth spurts so we thought maybe Mm -hmm. that's just what it is but finally my mom intuition was like no something is definitely wrong so we took her to the pediatrician and sought a diagnosis and it took about six weeks from the time she started showing that something was wrong until we finally got a diagnosis and when we did it was not what we ever wanted to hear (laughs) Um, Uh, we want to share the name of diagnosis and what that is Sure. So it took a CAT scan, an MRI, and blood work, but we finally found out on Friday, February 13th of 2015 that our daughter had something called Crabbe, K-R-A-B-B-E. It's a Danish word, I think. Mm -hmm. Crabbe leukodystrophy, which is a neurological, and it's an inherited neurological disorder that is terminal. Uh, Basically, her body was not producing enough of an enzyme that our bodies normally produce to protect the myelin, which surrounds every nerve in our bodies. And so because of that, she was in extreme pain because it's kind of like, it was described as like an electrical wire, how there's a coating Uh, over those wires. Mm -hmm. And when that coating is gone, then you can have shorts and you can have sparks and things you don't want. So on that day we were told our child was dying, our six month old baby girl was dying and that's definitely not something any parent ever wants to hear or should hear uh that same day we were also told we shouldn't try to have more children because it is genetic and we both carry it and we had no idea because as carriers you don't exhibit symptoms so we also were told her life expectancy was two years of age or less on that day okay so let, let's stop there for a second so um were you a christian at that point Yes, we both. Okay. Yes, we both. Okay. So you sit there and you hear this news. What What do you think at that point? Or what did you think or, or feel? <laughs> um, Spiritually, like, felt- what was your conversation with God? Or was there not even one? There I'm honestly, giving you the cold shoulder. <laughs> there honestly wasn't one, but it wasn't out of anger. It was out of a complete lack of words. I mean... And I am a writer. I've never had a shortage of words, but I will tell you, it took a few days to be able to actually pray because I just literally had no idea what to say. We were just kind of stunned. And so it took a few days for that, the numbness to wear off and then to be able to approach God like that. And it's in those moments when I'm so thankful 
that the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit speaks for us because oh my gosh I have uh, no idea what he said during those days but I didn't know what to say that is exactly what I was just thinking I wonder what the Holy Spirit was saying on your behalf wow okay go ahead <laughs> <laughs> no it's fine yeah so after a few days we finally were both individually and as a couple in a place where we could just be like okay okay god i mean we definitely were still grieving like that's when it hit us the hardest was diagnosis day and i'd say a month following just trying to accept this new normal at the same time having new medical equipment entering our house and all those other realities that didn't really give us a lot of time to just be able to sit and ponder things. We mm-hmm. had to learn how to take care of our daughter and make sure that she would thrive the best that she could. And so it made it really difficult to just find time to pray. But when we did, and especially after the first month, we just made a decision and we were like, you know what, God, we know, we know who you are. We know your character We know that you stick to your promises and we know that you love us. And so somehow in the midst of all of this, we are going to trust that you are still good and that this is going to be okay. And no matter what it looks like, um, the song, it is well with our soul. So the inspiration for the title of our book, my book, um, because we said, even so, like, even if you do not heal her and you take her from us, even so, it's going to be well. And we didn't know obviously at that point what that was going to look like or how that was going to play out. But we just made that decision that we would choose joy and love and choose to believe the foundation of faith that we had both built our lives on. So I'm here thinking what was, was there, cause I don't want to assume your feelings. Was there a roller coaster of, of hope of, okay, you're, you're, yes, you're going to cure her. I I believe this. Cause I know as Christians, sometimes we just declare things, right. Mm -hmm. And hopes. And then we do say, you know, well, I guess maybe some people do. I know that when I pray with hope, I do throw in there, but your will, right. Right. Ultimately. Um, so was there a, oh my gosh, no, she is going to pass. This is the reality. No, you, you can't cure her. Like, was there a dynamic of just that up and down or were you steady? Like what were you feeling and processing through that? At the beginning, I think we definitely were more in the the camp of, okay, you're allowing this for a reason, so it must be so that you can heal her and people are going to see it all over the world because she by then already had a pretty big following. And so between that that perspective, but then also all the people that honestly kind of made us feel like in order for her to be healed, we had to just believe it was going to happen and not have any sort of doubts which is not biblical but this is what happened like when you have strangers from all over the world trying to encourage you you get these messages and they were like oh if your faith is strong enough she'll be healed and so I really struggled with that and I talk about that a lot in the book how I finally came to the point where I was like that is not the God of the Bible and he may not choose to heal her and if he doesn't it's okay because she's healed in heaven and that is where we all should be striving for anyway, like heaven's awesome. And we're, that's what we're made for. Um, but it was obviously not that quick of a journey. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It took a little while and we did take her to places where they said people had been healed through prayer and 
we even went one of our trips to my hometown. We went, took her to Bethel, which is a big international church that is located only 30 minutes from where I grew up. And we took her to a healing session and we had all the hope in the world, but the Holy spirit really started to reveal to me, I would say even like six or seven months into this journey. Yeah. Probably that long Mm -hmm. that that was not God's plan. And so that helped me accept it early on. Um, I, there is definitely a fine line between hope and reality Mm -hmm. and um, hope is definitely the harder, the harder of the two, but at the same time, I, I trust what I felt the Lord saying, which was that that was not her plan or his plan for her. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Whew, I'm sitting here at the edge of my seat. I just even dropped my phone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm starting to perspire here. Um, I'm connect. I'm connecting with you, um, which is awesome. I guess the next question I would have is, so you're at, we stopped before I started asking questions of other things, you know, six weeks, MRIs, her, um, I don't remember the name, her neuron covers, her nerve covers were, what was it called? Myelin. <laughs> yes. Her myelin is, is, um, not present or is it disintegrating? Disintegrating. Okay. Disintegrating. Um, so what part of that process is it that then ends up having you then to, you know, pass away? Um, instead of just living in pain the rest of your life, like what, what medically, what, what is that about? With leukodystrophies, mm-hmm. the white matter of the brain, which that's what, you know, like leuko means white, dystrophy means, I actually don't know what it was. So, well, I, mean, I know, yeah, dystrophy, it. yes. <laughs> I don't know what the technical <laughs> definition is. Um, so the white matter of your brain is important. Um, there's white and gray matter. And if you could see her MRIs, you could see it just disappearing. And when that happens, the brain obviously loses function. Eventually the brainstem loses all function, which your brainstem regulates your temperature. It's what controls your involuntary actions like breathing. Um, All those different things that are vital to your survival are controlled obviously by the brain, but by these specific parts. And so as the disease progresses, your brain just literally loses the ability to keep your body going. Okay, so that would explain why she started going backward then, right? Right. Would that be an accurate assessment? Exactly. Okay, so then you start getting machines in and you start learning how to take care of her. Like, what was that process like? I I fought it so hard. Not, like, actually out loud Mm -hmm. fighting it with the doctors, but with every, every new thing that came in and it started with a feeding tube, and a feeding pump and a rig, a very rigid schedule, meds, all these things. And I just, I remember feeling so intimidated by it all, but also just because it's not how it's supposed to be. I felt like every part of me was just fighting against it internally, but I knew I had to do it for Tori's sake. But especially once the respiratory care equipment came in, I was supposed to use all these machines to help her every day and to, oh my goodness her schedule I saw it recently when I was glancing through my book because I detailed my the schedule out at one point and it made me feel exhausted because I was her caretaker when Brennan was at work and it was just crazy the amount of things that I had to do just to make sure that our daughter was comfortable and that her body was functioning the best that it could so as all that was happening 
that was, I think, the hardest part because, like I said, none of this is how it's supposed to be. You're not supposed to have a child, have a baby, and then six months later find out, oh, actually, she's going to die and it's going to be terrible and you're going to have to watch all the or like have all these things into your home. Um, she eventually was even on oxygen for about the last four months of her life. Mm-hmm. So then that brought in more equipment, more tools. Yeah. It was so, not fun. As a person, I mean, because, you know, so you're a mom, but you're Mm -hmm. a wife, you're a friend, you're a daughter, maybe niece, whatever, you know, (laughs) you had, you had a life outside of just, you know, not just of being a mom. How, how did that affect you going from, you know, uh, having a five month old and imagine starting little play dates or going to the park and meeting new moms or whatever we do at five months, (laughs) depending (laughs) on who you are, um, and the next thing you know, your daughter needs all this care. You're probably, uh, did you have to stay home with her? She, she didn't go out, did you go out much with her? I know you took her on trips, so that's not accurate. But anyway, you can tell me because now I think I'm thinking back through the years. I'm like, oh, wait, she had pictures of her going places. Yeah. <laughs> so I do remember that. <laughs> um, but, you know, it obviously changed. Share, share with us how your life changed as a human. <laughs> as a, <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> As a human, it, it definitely took some letting go of anything, like anything possibly selfish mm. because I didn't have a choice. I had to become even more selfless than any mother already is because of her needs. And at the beginning, it was pretty easy because it was just the feeding pump that had to come with us. And we could we could kind of schedule our days around her feedings. But as an introvert, I really didn't mind not having to leave the house that often we were we were very fortunate to have all of her therapies happen at our house because of early intervention so people mm-hmm. came to me so I didn't have to worry about packing up the van and driving her which was good because eventually she lost her ability to swallow and that meant we really couldn't even drive her anywhere with just one person because somebody had to be back there in the back to suction and get saliva out mm-hmm. of her throat and so um, we did the best that we could. We had several people that came over anytime I needed, even just a sh- I could call and say, can you please just come so I can shower? Um, Brennan made sure that he only worked four days a week, which is all he's required to work. So that on that fifth day, he could not only help me, but we could go have adventures. And so we, we did have an extensive bucket list with her of 50 things that we completed. And that that was great. So that made me feel human because even though we don't know what she got out of all those experiences, we at least were able to build memories. And that was really good for us, not only individually, but as a couple. Oh, that's awesome. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about, I don't remember the purpose because I mean, I've internet known you and met you and whatnot for a couple <laughs> years. Um, so I know a bit of your story or whatnot, but I remember following, uh, um, you know, from the outside and pictures and did you have a, a, a bucket list of places to go or do things that you would have done if she, you know, would have lived to adulthood or was there something like that? Or am I totally out there? <laughs> yes. No, we did have a bucket list. Okay. Yeah. So obviously if she were healthy and still mm-hmm. here, we would not have had, but yeah. several of the other Crabby families had created bucket lists for their children. And so we decided that that was a great, a great thing to do because not only did it give us 
opportunities to make memories, but it helped us to feel like normal parents, normal people doing things with their children. Um, and so we always tried to do things that we knew would stimulate her in some way. But as I said, it's, it's really hard to know what she got out of all of them because you just don't know neurologically. We know she never went blind or deaf, but we know that the brain was having problems like processing Mm -hmm. that information. So regardless, we knew we had to do that and to choose to live with her because that's what she deserved. She deserved the best life we could give her in her 20 months instead of just sitting at home all the time moping because that's not what life should be about. Yeah. So, you know, as she's getting older, she's getting sicker, right? Right. And so what did that do to your mama heart to see that slowly happen right in front of your eyes? It was definitely a challenge, but especially about six weeks before she ended up going to heaven, she started having what we call blue episodes. And that's where she would stop breathing and her oxygen saturation would drop to dangerous levels and her chest would heave like she was trying to take a breath, but she couldn't. And those, the first few blue episodes were terrifying because they just kind of started out of the blue, which is a lot of what happens with diseases like this. The regressions just kind of start happening. And so we didn't know that she only had six weeks left, but at that time we had to make the hard decision to just stay home. And right around that time, I heard one of my friends speak and she gave the example of Jacob and Esau when they meet up after being estranged for so long. Jacob has a lot of young children and Esau wants him to travel, wants all of them to travel with him to wherever they're going. I can't remember. And Jacob, it says that he looks back at his children and his animals and he says, I need to travel at the pace of my children. And it was the perfect timing for me to hear that because we had all these things planned that we were trying to do with her. And it, it was another one of those let go and and not be selfish moments. Yeah. What's best for her is that we just stay home and we just chill. And I'm so glad that we did because that's really what she needed. Oh, Uh, (laughs) so Were there any, uh, this is what I'm wondering. And I guess I'm wondering for myself. Um, In a situation like that, um, I imagine that I would go through, run the gamut of emotions from faith to just plain bitterness (laughs) and anger. Um, (laughs) And and probably a lot more of that than the other. Uh, But (laughs) I'm thinking, and okay, so let me preface this. I'm going to ask you this question. And if you do not want to answer it or think it's appropriate, you feel free to say, I, I pass. And we'll talk about something else. <laughs> wow. Okay. <Yes. laughs> so my question is, did you ever feel like or think, God, please take her sooner? And did you feel, if you did, did you feel embarrassed or ashamed by that? Um, and if not, then we can talk about something else. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is a totally valid question. And I can tell you that we both, Brennan and I, both had times where we prayed that the Lord would just take her for her sake, because Mm -hmm. as parents, you want what's best for your children. And 
we just kept praying, especially once these blue episodes started. Mm-hmm. And so every time those happened, we were like, are you dying now? Are you dying now? Is this the moment? And those kind of wear on you. And we got to the point where we said, Lord, we know that your will is greater than ours. And even though we want to keep her here forever with us, heaven is what she needs. And so it took watching her deteriorate to get to the point where we were like, okay, you can take her and it's going to be okay. Um, Because no parent should have to watch their child struggle to breathe. And uh, even thinking back, I just shudder because I, it was, it was terrifying And so those moments I know now God allowed to get us to the point that when he did decide, okay, it is her time, we were okay because we knew that she was no longer struggling because, yeah, that's just, yeah, it's not good. (laughs) Well, I, I, I was thinking, you know, as you were speaking, because I can imagine somebody feeling probably shame or embarrassment that they would wish that. And, you know, what would you tell a parent if they are in this situation or have been and are feeling guilty or ashamed of, of wishing that it all ends? Um, I would say that, I mean, it all would depend on where your heart was about it. But I mean, for us, it was complete selflessness because we didn't want her to suffer anymore. And we knew that death was inevitable. I mean, it is for all of us, but especially for her, we, like I said, the Lord had revealed that he wasn't, he did not intend to heal her on earth Mm -hmm. and that was okay. So when we, when we knew that and accepted that, then it was like, okay, well then don't delay this because we want her to be happy and healthy and running around and doing whatever she's doing in heaven now, instead of sitting here struggling, barely existing And so for us, it was because it was a selfless attitude, really looking out for what was best for her. I I feel no shame whatsoever. And I know that there are a lot of parents who are in our situation who they do, they just long for their kids to just stay forever. And I can't say anything against that because obviously every parent loves their child. Yeah. But for us, as we, especially those last six weeks, just watched her struggle to even take a breath it helped us realize that it was okay to to say god you can take her now um what was the protocol when you had those blue episodes where you do not resuscitate did you what was are you okay talking about that process oh yeah okay we we did sign a dnr Uh because we actually that january had just gone through our cpr renewal and we were reminded of the brutality of it. And especially for her knowing that it was only going to maybe prolong her life a little bit longer. We said, no, no way, no DNR. But the best part is we never even had to invoke it because God stepped in and did the work for us. So we are so thankful we did not have to, but the protocol, there really wasn't any, we, we would just panic breathe on her like blowing her face yeah just try to and tell her to breathe and just try to get her to breathe and once the first few happened and we kind of just accepted and talked to the other families and found out this is normal it became a little less panicky because we're like okay this she'll be okay she'll bounce back um so there wasn't really any like set protocol it was really just get her to breathe again gotcha um so I, you know, you can only speak from your experience and, and your, um, 
your personality. Uh, but, you know, I, I experienced you of being just very much at peace and even watching your journey throughout and, and you know, the campaigning you, you've done, um, which we can get into that about um, informing, you know, Congress and the public about just a simple test um, mm-hmm. uh, for Crabbe. Um, but what, what, are, what are things that looking back that you've learned that you could give as advice or things to do um, whether it's long-term, you know, illness, I'm not necessarily, you know, that they'll pass away early, but having a, a child to take care of and, and what things would probably be instrumental for you as the person, as a you know, mother or father to, to do, um, to not be consumed by it all and still, I, I don't know, still live out the journey that God created you for, even if it's as, as a take a caretaker, but I imagine that even if that, that is so, there has to be an amount of fight to still be joyful within that. Like, what was, what, what did that look like? What would, what would you say? It definitely is a choice that you have to make sometimes moment by moment. And sometimes you have to look for reasons to be joyful in the midst of life's life's most terrible circumstances but I will say that something that we found to be true is that gratitude really is the root of joy and if you can find reasons to be thankful every single day even in the midst of something that you think there's no way I could ever be thankful for any of this um, it really will help you to find joy and peace and to be more gracious about your circumstances um, for instance, when she, when she got her feeding tube, that meant I could no longer breastfeed her. Um, I had to pump and then even then the stress just killed my supply. And so that was, I felt at first like that was taken away from me. Something else was being taken away from me. And then when we thankfully had the blessing of receiving breast milk from friends of ours and tons of donors so that she could stay on breast milk. I learned to realize and be thankful for that because I was like, wow, this means other people can help feed her. This is one less thing for me to have to stress about doing several times a day instead of just holding her. And so I, I started to just reframe situations and finding ways to be thankful makes it easier to choose to be joyful. So even now, even though she's been gone for two years, it's, it's really not difficult to still find joy. And I'm not saying we don't still have our moments. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we always will. And they, they'll come out of nowhere. Like recently, Brennan had a moment where he was, he was struck by a moment with a father and a daughter that he'll never have. Mm. And so that made him emotional, which then made me emotional because he's never emotional and I am not either, but you know how that works. If he is, that means I am anyway. Yeah, you have me over here. Like, I'm all like, where are the tissues? (laughs) (laughs) Just thinking about it. Okay, go ahead. So, yeah, in those moments, we just, we let it happen. And then we just remember, she is where we long to be. As followers of Jesus and as people who believe that heaven is what we were created for. This earth is not what we were created for. Nothing was ever supposed to be like this. It makes us just remember and be thankful for the fact that our separation is temporary. Mm-hmm. In the grand scheme of eternity, we're going to look back and be like, wow, that went really fast. And we'll see her again. And she 
is better and more alive than she ever was. And so when we focus on that, instead of focusing on what we lost, I think that's what a lot of, a lot of people who suffer great loss, I think that's possibly the biggest uh, hurdle mm-hmm. to joy is that it's hard for them to get out of the mindset of we lost this and I don't have this person here anymore. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that because had we not gone through all this subatory, I, my perspective on death would never have changed. But now I honestly feel like I want to write a second book. <laughs> it's going to be about, <laughs> about death and how the church has it wrong. When believers go home to the Lord, we should be rejoicing. And yeah, there will be that grief. Change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the little bit of grief and change that happens. But I don't believe we were ever supposed to let it derail our lives or make us miserable to the point where we're crying most of the day, every single day. Because if you look at what the Bible says, sorry, this is my little soapbox. I'll try not to get on it. But every <laughs> you have one foot on it. <laughs> I know. Every single time that Paul talks about death, it is not, it is not scary. It is not with grief. He talks about it like expectantly. Death is not supposed to be something that we as believers fear. And it, if I had not, like I said, if I had not gone through this, but also losing my grandfather to Alzheimer's, which we watched him endure for, I think, nine years, just a few months before Tori passed away. If we hadn't gone through those two things, I probably would still be in a different boat. But the Lord has used those things to show me that death is not the end. It really is the beginning. And it's something that we shouldn't be afraid of. Amen. Well, thank you for your perspective. Um, So do you want to say anything else about the journey from, you know, when she was diagnosed till she went on to heaven? I guess I could just say mm-hmm. um, about the day she went to heaven. Mm-hmm. So also, Brennan and I met nine years ago today, actually. And today was Easter Sunday, nine years ago. So her story started on Easter, her earthly story. And she ended up going to heaven on Easter of 2016. And we love when God shows us his faithfulness in those little ways, those little non-coincidences really, Mm -hmm. because it just makes the story even richer. But on Easter morning of 2016, I actually was sleeping upstairs because I only got about two nights of sleep a week. (laughs) And so Brennan had the night shift and before we went to bed, she had had a blue episode that was her worst to date mm-hmm. where her oxygen saturation dropped down to 4%. And it's typically supposed to be in the 90s. <laughs> and it dropped to 4%. Wow. And she, But she bounced back. And so we were all like, okay. I said we all because my parents were in town. But we were like, okay, we'll go ahead and go to bed. And at 5 o'clock, 5.01, Brennan called me. And it woke me up and he had never had to call me before. And so I knew something was really wrong. So I ran downstairs and she was already gone. And at first that was devastating Mm -hmm. because the only thing, the only thing we had asked God for was that we would all be together and that we'd be at home. And so in that moment, I remember just crying out to God and be like, really like this one thing you know, I wasn't here. And so we, it was really hard to just 
like let that go. But we, we knew we had things we had to do. We had to call hospice. We had to do these things. So my dad was holding her while Brendan and I made these calls we had to make. And then 15 minutes later, she took a breath and neither of us had ever been, actually none of us had ever been around a dead body. So we thought, well, maybe that's just something that happens. Mm -hmm. Like we don't know. But then she took another breath and then her eyes popped open and my dad was like, she's alive. And we had a stethoscope. So we know she was gone for 15 solid minutes. And so we were stunned. Oh my gosh. I have like goosebumps all over. (laughs) We were stunned because we're like, well, it's Easter. That's the day that Jesus raised from the dead. Does this mean that she's healed? Like, is this the miracle we were waiting for? So hospice came and checked her out and they said, we don't know what to tell you because her numbers are perfect and she looks good. So we're just going to leave. And then, you know, obviously we were told to call if we needed to. So we just held her. I got my camera out and took pictures of her hands and her head and her face and just whatever I could. And then she fell back asleep. And so we were exhausted. So we went ahead and the three of us just laid in bed together. And then at nine Oh five, the pulse ox went off again, but this time it was for good. But that time we were able to say, it's okay. And we were able to tell her, like, it's okay. Just go to Jesus, run around, like, be yeah. the little girl you were always supposed to be. Because God was faithful and honored our prayers. Um, so you did end up being able to be there then for her final. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. And so on that Easter Sunday morning, the very day that gives us all of the hope that helped us get through all of this, Jesus welcomed her into his arms. And we can only imagine what she and all the other Crave children (laughs) and any other children that have gone to heaven um, are doing and how much fun they're having. And so that brings us such joy. Wow. That is a beautiful story. Thanks for sharing that, that specific one. Um, so I know that through this journey, you decided then to start being an advocate. How, how did that go about and, you know, what was the process and where are you at now? I have a political science degree that I've never planned to actually use (laughs) because after I got it, I realized I actually don't want to have anything to do with politics. And so, so for years, I just have. I mean, that's actually what brought me to Pennsylvania was the thought of working here in Harrisburg at a lobbying firm. And that's what I thought I wanted to do. Lobbying for what? Oh, I didn't have a. Oh, just lobbying. Okay. Lobbying. That's what I thought I wanted to do. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, The American President, but that's what made me want to be a lobbyist. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) I digress. So I did it for almost a year and I hated it. I have never been more miserable in a job in my entire life. So I know that God allowed that to happen to show me like, you're going the wrong way. I don't want you to do this. But then it just kind of became, I hate politics altogether and I don't want to do it. So fast forward to 2015, our daughter is diagnosed with a terminal genetic disease that we find out had she been screened for it at birth, they could have treated it. And so treatment or cure, like what, what does that look like? It is considered a treatment at this point because until they learn how to remyelinate Mm -hmm. the body, which would also affect diseases like MS and other things Mm -hmm. like that, that are demyelinating diseases 
until scientists can figure out how to do that, there's really no cure, but they can do a stem cell transplant through the bone marrow. So it's an intense thing mm-hmm. requiring chemo and all that, but they can halt any progression, which is why it has to be done before symptoms occur. So they really oh. prefer to do it within the first 30 days of life, mm-hmm. but they can halt any progression of the disease that has already happened. And you should see some of these kids who have been transplanted. Some of them do have a little bit of a disability, but there are some that you would never even know. Never. Like they are just normal, typical children that are running So do they around. live with pain then? Or no. no? Okay. So it's just then the disability would look like what? If, if they weren't totally. A lot of it is it's more like if they, if they're transplanted mm-hmm. before they're symptomatic Sometimes they just have a little bit of a developmental delay, but that's not even because of the disease. That's from going through the process. So they're they're in a hospital bed, going through chemo, going through this transplant from yeah, birth. Gotcha. So it kind of just delays their development. Other ones who have chosen to transplant after the symptoms have occurred, but they might have a different onset than Tori did, meaning that they would have a longer lifespan anyway. Sometimes they just have, they lost some of their ability. They're in a wheelchair. You know, it, it, it does okay. vary, but all in all, the treatment has about a 90% success rate. But Tori was not a candidate for that? Or did you choose not to go that route? She was not a candidate okay. because the, the, the disease had progressed so far already. Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So then with screening, you can treat. And then what? <laughs> <laughs> Well, the screening is the whole key, though. Um, at the time she was diagnosed, only three states, three, were screening for Crebe. As of now, New York, Missouri, Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, Illinois, six. I was thinking it was seven, but it's six. Um, six states are screening. I didn't hear so you say Pennsylvania, right? You did not hear me say Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> So the state you live in. <laughs> yes. yes. In 2014, a law was passed and signed into law. It was supposed to take effect that December that would make screening for crab A mandatory in Pennsylvania. However, there is a prior law from 2006 that gives authority to a panel of physicians to, um, regulate all of the things that are on the newborn screenings and so everything that they well everything has to go through this panel Uh until until the last year or so I would say I didn't really respect the panel because I I didn't understand I was like well this is law you know political scientist here I'm like it's law you should be doing it however there's a lot of ethics that go into these decisions and obviously medical decisions in general or medical information in general. So as I've sat at these quarterly meetings for the last two years, I have heard them discuss different diseases in addition to Crebe, heard them talk about the reasons why they don't think that they should be in the newborn screening. And typically that's if there's no treatment at all available because they said they're like, what are the ethics of that? Telling parents that their child has something, but we can't do anything about it. Mm. so okay they all that to say that's why the law hasn't yet been implemented but may 3rd is the next meeting and i will be there even if the newborn twins have to come with brennan and i like (laughs) we will be there because crebe is on the agenda 
in the last six months, there has been a lot of published research about the treatment, about the disease. And that's what we've been waiting for. They kept telling me, well, nothing's been published. And so amazingly enough, everything that's been published is what I was telling them. <laughs> but because I'm not a doctor, it doesn't matter. Oh, well, so, of course not. <laughs> you should so, have studied yeah. medicine instead of political science. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm very, very hopeful that this meeting is going to be very productive and I'm hoping that they will decide to vote and say, okay, we're ready to move Crabbe from the secondary panel to the mandatory panel because right now in Pennsylvania, only one hospital in the entire state is screening every child for Crabbe. And that happens to be Hershey medical center right here, five minutes from our house where our babies will be born. So every other hospital you have to ask for it to happen. Like the mom has to ask, which means you have to know, know about exists. it. Yeah, exactly. And even then a lot of the hospitals are telling these new moms, we don't know what you're talking about. Or they say, Oh, well it's on the state list. So we screen for it, which is also not true because Pennsylvania does not screen equally. Um, really long story short, basically every hospital chooses what they screen for in this state, except for the 10, nine or 10 that are mandatory. Yeah. The other 26, or 27 each hospital chooses from because they have to absorb the cost. So that means that in this state, your zip code determines your life or death. If you're born with one of these diseases. Mm -hmm. So that is not acceptable. And I'm now using my degree to try to in Tori's name and like for her legacy to make sure that every baby is given a, an adequate chance at life, not only just for crab a, but for all these diseases. Gotcha. Wow. Well, I'll be uh, eager to hear what they decide in, on here coming up in May because um, I've seen you campaigning. And so let's change gears here um, with, uh, you know, you, we've talked about you expecting twins. Uh, do you want to talk about that decision and how that all came about or not? <laughs> <laughs> I want to be respectful of your life and privacy. Otherwise, I'm, I'm no. I'm, we've I'm shameless about all this. <laughs> <laughs> so we were told, as I said on diagnosis mm -hmm. day, we were told to not try to have more children naturally, because even though Crabbe is a, an autosomal recessive trait, which means that the chances should be one in one in four, like twenty five percent for pregnancy. More often than not, Crabbe repeats itself in families. And so we were told by several doctors, including Tori's specialist, to not have kids. So we then talked to some other Crabbe families who had undergone in vitro fertilization for this very reason, because they can actually test embryos before implantation. And so we prayed for about two years we saw it pastoral counsel because part of us were like, well, is this playing God? Like, yeah, that's a good question. This? Yeah. Like, I mean, not, not the fertility part of it. That's fine. And I, I, I have no problem with people using fertility. Mm -hmm. That's not at all what I'm saying, but because we would be creating embryos and then having them tested, then we had the ethics of, well, what do we do if any of them have crab a, like what, <laughs> what is the right thing to do? But every, every piece of counsel we received, was able to use scripture to show that they believed it was, it was okay. Like that we were being wise because wisdom is using the knowledge you have. And so we decided to go ahead and go through with IVF and did some fundraising because of 
our insurance didn't cover any of it. And we started that process last June and none of our embryos had crabe. So God yet again was faithful and didn't even put us in that position to decide what to do with the affected embryos. We had five that were viable. Two of them were not even carriers. Two of them are carriers. And then the the fifth one, actually, we did have to let go to heaven because it had some chromosomal abnormalities that would have resulted in death in the womb. Okay. So we decided we're just going to let you go to heaven now. So Tori has a little brother up there too, (laughs) Uh, because that one was a boy. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we decided to put in the two, a boy and a girl, the two non-carrier embryos last September. One of them did not attach, which we now know was the girl. And then the boy attached and split. So we're having identical twin boys who do not even carry the Krebe gene. So they will never have to worry about their children or passing it on yeah, to their to children. children. Mm-hmm. Wow. And we, so we still have two girls that are frozen. And mm-hmm. so the plan is about a year after they're born to try again. So we could, we joke, we could end up with zero to four children out of that. <laughs> you be oh. careful what you uh, put out there in word. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, through every step of the way, God really has been faithful. And it would be so easy to just say, oh, he took our daughter. So he's terrible and there's no reason to follow him. But We truly believe his word and we believe the foundation of faith that we have built throughout our lives and the ways we've seen him work, the things we've felt him say to us. And we believe that all of this is for a greater purpose, even though we, we may not see it fully Mm -hmm. until we get to heaven, but all in all, he is still good. And we just love seeing him in these little ways, even like with these embryos. <laughs> wow. It's so neat to hear, you know, a little bit more about different ways that, you know, God was there present. And I totally appreciate um, your heart of just focusing on being grateful for, for, for the good. Um, because I know that even in the midst of suffering, there's always something good. Even if it's just one thing. Um, But sometimes it is hard. It's hard to see the light when you feel like you're just surrounded, you know, in darkness. So I appreciate you sharing that early on. That's what you um, had decided to to do. It's a decision, right? Absolutely. Um, So usually I um, go from here and I ask my uh, guests um, how they're being salt in their neck of the woods. So what what? What are you doing? How are you being salt to folks? Well, I'm hoping that my book is a way of being salt mm-hmm. because I tried to make it so that it wasn't specific just to child loss, but just to life in general. And I'm hoping that it's encouraging people and helping them get through whatever they might be going through in their own journeys. Um, and then obviously... I try even just amongst the other families that are going through this to try to be encouraging because everybody's at a different stage. And even just yesterday I was talking to through Facebook, um, a crabe mom whose daughter 
is still with her and she was she's struggling with a lot of the things that we struggle with early on and so I'm trying to gently which you know it's hard sometimes because I want to just be like do this do this yeah but I'm trying to just gently encourage her and remind her that there is joy to be found and since salt adds life I feel like that's a way a way that I'm doing that um just I'm also trying to just tone my own life down because I'm about to have twins and I'm very aware of the fact that I'm not going to have very much energy pretty soon. So, um, yeah, while I might have to tone it down a little bit, I have been doing speaking engagements and continuing to stay involved in church, obviously always working on our marriage and making sure that we are strong and solid and all of that. Excellent. Excellent. I, I love that. Um, I, I do find it a lot of times interesting. I mean, had you not been in these shoes, you would not be probably encouraging people <laughs> right? <laughs> with, you know, children that are ill um, or terminally ill. ill. Uh, so I always find it interesting how our journeys take us somewhere else. Um, and, uh, and I also find it interesting that you studied political science and you hated it. You had no desire to, you know, pursue that as a career yet. Yep. <laughs> it's been a very useful tool for your journey. Absolutely. So, you know, no coincidences there. I, I totally am like grinning from ear to ear. I love those little <laughs> God things um, for Me sure. Too. And so if you were a spice... <laughs> <laughs> you have to tell me what you what we were talking about earlier. You have to repeat this about what you did. So if you were a spice, which one would you be? <laughs> so, and and what, what do you bring to the table? Oh my gosh. When you asked me dying. about this, when you asked me about this, I, I actually literally went over to my spice cabinet first because I'm like, uh I I have no idea. Plus, you know, I have pregnancy brain, I'm tired. So then I was like, I'm going to try one of those personality tests. So I literally went to Google and, and I found a test that was what spice are you? It actually had like 29 questions. Like it was kind of ridiculous. But according to this, <laughs> oh my goodness, according to this, I am mint. Oh, it says because I'm a breath of fresh air. It says you tend to take control in most situations. Yes, <laughs> and if you and, and if you don't take care, others may see you as taking over. There's a youthful energy about you, and then it says, which I thought you will appreciate too, your favorite season is likely to be spring. And I just laugh because spring is still not here. It's so elusive, Pennsylvania. <laughs> so apparently, I am. I am mint. I love it. <laughs> there you go, listeners. If you're not sure, go Google what spice are you personality test. <laughs> you know what? I'm probably going to do that because people ask me, you what should. about you? And I'm like, I haven't decided yet. I really just like. <laughs> <laughs> but if it makes fat taste good, that's the spice. <laughs> but I have committed that by the night time I have a, the next episode uh, well actually I have a few recorded but the next I record I will have an answer so that'll be my homework here within the next couple days so that um, and then I will share, share with everybody yes by Siam. oh my <laughs> goodness that's hysterical I love it mint refreshing but you can be pungent and direct. I you know what I see that I can totally see that in you that's perfect <laughs> so it was correct <laughs> 
I like the take control part because it's definitely <laughs> true. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much, Lisa, for coming on and sharing um, such a tender and personal story. And um, thank you for, you know, becoming then a champion for others and uh, loving them well through this season. And I wish you the best with your new boys. Thank you. And um, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll probably uh, drive up and, and see you. But I don't, I don't visit newborns. I, I have a policy. You never know when you're carrying germs. So I try to go visit people when they're older. Well, <laughs> well we appreciate it. <laughs> yes, I, I have that policy. You know what, my, my oldest, when he was born, um, he got sick very young, and he ended up with uh, a nebulizer, and it was just horrible. Oh, and, yeah. you know, and I don't remember anybody specific coming to visit. Maybe I was just, you know, around. I was young, whatever, taking him everywhere. I, the point is that he got sick young, and it was, it was a hard time. So yeah, now, um, unless it's a cl- really close friend that, you know, you, if everybody took that policy, then nobody would have any help. So if it's a really, <laughs> really close friend, you know, BFF, then I'm just like, yeah, I'll come and I'll help you, whatever. But, you know, more acquaintances, whatnot. If I'm not needed, I'll visit you when they're older. <laughs> <laughs> not a bad so, policy. Yes, yes. So I try to give back in that way. So there's me being a little bit of a salt there. Yeah. Um, but yes, uh, I'll hopefully I'll see you around and get to meet your babies. And I wish you the best with the sale of your book as well uh, um, along the way. And May, May 3rd, you said? Yes, May 3rd. Yes. So anybody of you listening, um, oh, you know what? I think this may actually, I'm not sure when this will be aired. Maybe, maybe it'll be before that. But <laughs> <laughs> it's afterward and hopefully, you know, we can share an update. But if not, I, I, I wish you the best on May 3rd. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Bye. Bye. Wow. I don't know about you, but gratitude is not always my first response to heartache. And I love how Lisa just taught me to focus more on the light, especially in the darkness. If you were left wanting to know more, purchase her book, Even So Joy. The link is in the show notes. Did you like today's episode? Hook a sister up. Share it with your friends. Rate, review, follow. Do all the things. Until the next one.